The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Uh, Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. On today's show, brought to you in part by ASI and Morphotech, we'll be talking about treating cancer during pregnancy. For most women, pregnancy is a, a time of joy, a time of celebration, planning for your family's future. But for one in a thousand pregnant women who are diagnosed with cancer, what is supposed to be the most wonderful time in your life becomes one of the most difficult, confusing, and really frightening times. Um, due to the rarity of cancer diagnosis during pregnancy, there's not a whole lot of data on the effect of cancer treatment on the unborn child, um, and, and really even physicians' own inexperience in treating uh, pregnant women uh, uh, compounds the uncertainty, um, and, and many just won't offer chemotherapy to pregnant women. Uh, for decades, the consensus among physicians was that any cancer uh, puts a mother and fetus in competition for survival. Uh, so, you know, in this situation, women find themselves faced with many difficult, painful uh, uh, questions of whether to terminate a pregnancy, to uh, put their babies, lives, their own lives in danger. Uh, uh, do I begin chemotherapy? Do we delay treatment? Um, you know, modern research suggests, suggests now that cancer treatment may not have the negative effect that was once suspected, and, and unborn babies may do as well as other children in the general population despite being exposed to chemotherapy. So on the show today, we're going to provide you with an informative overview of the topic from a medical, psychological, emotional perspective. We'll also delve into some of the difficult personal decisions and considerations faced by women and their families um, uh, in such a difficult situation. So in the next hour, you'll be hearing from three guests about cancer during... Cancer During Pregnancy, our first guest is Dr. Elise Cardonic, an active member of the Hope for Two, the Pregnant with Cancer Network Board of Advisors. Dr. Cardonic keeps an ongoing registry of women diagnosed with cancer during pregnancy and follows in combination with their physicians the health of women and their children. She also has a registry of the pregnancy outcomes of women with a history of cancer. Welcome, Dr. Cardonic. Thank you. Also joining us today, we have Patty Murray, co-founder and the chairwoman of Hope for Two, the Pregnant with Cancer Network that offers free support for women diagnosed with cancer while pregnant. Hope for Two connects women who are currently pregnant with other women who have experienced a similar cancer diagnosis. Hi, Patty. Hi. And finally, we have Lisa Bender with us. Lisa was diagnosed at age 32 with stage 2 breast cancer while pregnant with her first child. She joined the Hope for Two network looking for support using many of their resources. She found uh, support, found others who had been living through similar situations. 
um, and uh, and these folks were very helpful to uh, her in her journey. Lisa's story has also been featured on the Today Show. Thanks for being here, Lisa. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Lisa. I, I, I want to jump in. We've got a lot to talk about today. Um, can you tell us your story, Lisa? Um, uh, 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 at what point during your pregnancy were you diagnosed with cancer? How did all that come about? Sure. Um, I was early in my pregnancy when my husband actually noticed a lump in my breast. Um, and I then did kind of a self-examination and found there were actually two lumps. Um, I kind of actually put it out of my mind and waited for my prenatal visit, my first prenatal exam, a couple of weeks later. Um, luckily, I had a doctor that took the lumps very seriously, and he referred me to, for an ultrasound of my breast a few days later, and I was diagnosed within a week of that initial appointment. Uh, I was 12 weeks pregnant at the time. You were 12 weeks pregnant at the time. And, yes, and this was our first child, so I was just getting through the, you know, the end of the first trimester. I was starting to feel you know, confident and comfortable with my pregnancy. I'm young and relatively young and healthy. I've, I wasn't worried about you know, right. feeling good. <laughs> So, uh, so what were your initial thoughts when, when when this happened to you? First of all, when you when you you know you found the lump, um, you know what, what what were you thinking, or did that was that immediate worry for you? Um, and then and then um, you know when they made the diagnosis, so what was going through your mind? When I found the initial lump, um, I was a little worried, but I chalked it up to normal pregnancy changes. And right. actually, the the lump that my husband had initially felt was benign. Um, it was the second lump that was the tumor. Um, I have no family history of breast cancer, and so I was completely shocked by the diagnosis. It really came out of left field for us. And then with the additional, you know, concern of being pregnant at the time, um, we were reeling um, in the weeks after my diagnosis. So, Lisa, so take us down that path. So they diagnose uh, the cancer through these tests. I, I, I mean, imagine you might have even been worried about getting the test, but they, they diagnosed the cancer through these tests, and then... What were, the, what were the conversations? What were the options that were uh, presented to you? I was di- diagnosed on a Tuesday. I was very lucky that my husband's aunt is actually an OBGYN who practices in New Jersey. And so we called her that night um, from my parents' house and all sat around talking on the phone. And she reassured us that I could go through cancer treatment while I was pregnant, that I would be able to very likely you know, maintain the pregnancy and have uh, treatment for the cancer. So she was a huge resource for us, and she jumped on a plane uh, that Thursday to come to my initial appointment with my oncologist that Friday, just a few days after I was diagnosed. Um, luckily, my oncologist was very supportive of uh, my commitment to the pregnancy. Um, we all sat around with a calendar looking at ways we could structure my treatment to um, you know, protect the baby and get her as far as close to term as possible. And so, so, so what year was this that, that the diagnosis happened? This was August of 2010, so a year and a half ago. Year, a year and a half ago. And, um, and so, um, so then tell us, so did you have surgery? Did you have chemotherapy? Um, uh, you know, again, what was it, you know, kind of feeling like to go, all, all, to go through this, knowing that, you're, you know, that the, your child's growing inside of you? Yes, I mean, those, it's hard to describe how stressful and confusing those first few weeks were after diagnosis, but I had an amazing medical team in place, and um, they were so supportive. So um, we, the plan we put together was to have surgery first. Um, I had a lumpectomy and sentinel node biopsy when I was 15 weeks pregnant. That was with general anesthesia, um, very nerve-wracking. Um, but luckily, my hospital um, 
the hospital I had surgery is actually a different wing than the labor and delivery hospital, but this amazing nurse got on a shuttle bus. It must have taken her over an hour round trip, but she came with a Doppler so I could hear the heartbeat as I was coming out of anesthesia from surgery. And your end, so, so, so tell us about, tell us about the birth. Tell us about your baby. Well, Alice is, um, going to be a year old on March 13th. And she's absolutely thriving. She, um, after surgery, I, I had chemotherapy. I had four rounds of adriamycin and cytoxan chemotherapy. I lost my hair. Um, I was exhausted. Um, and then I decided actually to wait. I suspended treatment for about three months um, so that Alice could be born at term. So she was born just a few days after, before her due date on March 13th uh, last year. So it's been um, a crazy year. I started back on chemotherapy three weeks after she was born. I did um, 12 weeks of chemo each week. And then I did 33 days of radiation consecutively. Uh, then I'm taking a drug called Herceptin. I get that infused every three weeks, and I'll finish that just a few days after Alice's first birthday. And I also am on a hormonal drug called Tamoxifen, which blocks estrogen um, because my, my cancer is estrogen-fueled as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so, so, so Alice is coming up on a year old, and she's doing great. Alice is absolutely thriving. She's precocious, and she's in a phase of giggling, and she's walking and chasing our dogs, and um, just a very active, happy baby, an incredible source of joy. And did, the, did all of the treatment impact your ability to breastfeed, or were you able to breastfeed or not? I was able to breastfeed Alice for three weeks uh, until I had to get back on chemotherapy. Um, and at that point, actually, Alice has been fed completely 100% donated breast milk since that wow. day. Um, it's thousands of ounces of breast milk that I've been able to get from friends and through there are several networks of women uh, around the country that provide breast milk to each other. Some women have extra and there are other women in need. So it's mm. been an informal thing. I've, I, I don't know how many miles I've driven to get breast milk for Alice. but Wow. That's great. Um, uh, we're we're gonna we're, we're moving quickly towards our break here. But Patty, let me pull you into the conversation. I know you were diagnosed with cancer during your pregnancy uh, as well, uh, a few more years back than a year ago. And so, tell us tell us about your uh, experience at that time. Yes, uh, it was back in actually December of 1995. Actually, I found the lump in um, November 1st. I was gardening, and uh, I found a lump in my upper in my armpit actually, and. Uh, I, too, like Lisa, went to my doctor. I was, um, you know, weeks into my pregnancy and um, didn't think too much of it. They said just to go and get a, a mammogram, and that, at that facility, they were able to, they saw nothing on the mammogram. They uh, did an ultrasound. It looked a little iffy, and they did a biopsy right then and there that day, and they said it was cancer. And I talk about a reeling experience like Lisa described. It was like I, I almost passed out when I heard that. Um, we went on a whole round of questions, um, what, what can be done, surgeries, et cetera. Um, and in December of that year, I did have major cancer. You know, I had a major surgery under general anesthesia. And like Lisa, it's like, how can that happen mm. uh, without hurting my baby? And they, they did a fetal monitor um, while the baby was, uh, while I had my surgery, just to make sure the baby wasn't in distress. And I started on a round of um, chemotherapy treatments of six months of one kind of um, treatment. And then um, Patrick was born a little bit early. He had more hair than I did. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, I had about a third of my hair. I was on, um, a, I, I didn't lose it with the first type of chemotherapy, but my other two children were born bald and Patrick had a full head of hair. It was just amazing. But it was just, um, I went through the first couple of days, like Lisa, just asking information. One doctor told me I would have to terminate. There was no information out there back then. There was no Internet to get on to, to find out whether I could have this baby um, and, and it would still be okay. Um, so I had to take my doctor's word for if he did the yeah. research. He did the, you know, the research on the, um, in, in the medical journals. And yeah. I just had to take him in blind faith. Um, and it, I really, like Lisa, I was committed to the pregnancy because I had a miscarriage just previously before I became pregnant with Patrick, and I was very committed. I wanted to be healthy for him and not compromise my my survival, but at the same time, if at all possible, I would like to keep my baby. Um, right. And then I went on for another four rounds of another kind of chemotherapy, so I had like 10 months of one kind of chemotherapy and then radiation. And uh, I was at all times before Patrick was born worried um, that maybe uh, he'd be born deformed or something. And uh, yeah, it was yeah. really, really scary. And then yeah. the first... So, yeah, Patty, baby... Patty we're, gonna, we're just going to jump to a quick break here, um, sure. and we're, we're going to pick right back up with your story when we come back in. Okay. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand, choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, today's episode is being brought to you in part by Celgene and Genentech. Uh, I'm Kim Tibaldo. I'm joined by Dr. Elise Cardonic and OBGYN, Patty Murray, Hope for Two, a co-founder, and Lisa Bender, Hope for Two member and breast cancer survivor. We are talking today about women who've been diagnosed with cancer while they are pregnant. We've uh, 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 we uh, heard a little bit about uh, about Lisa's story, and uh, happy to hear that her daughter Alice is coming up on her first birthday. Um, and um, and and Patty, we were learning a little bit more about your story, which I I really think it's interesting comparing your two stories of of you know. Of, of 16 years ago versus a year ago, and, and the differences um, that you know that you were there was so little information available to you at that time. You said you know we didn't even have the internet really, and and um, uh, and you really were going on the word of some of these uh, uh, healthcare professionals. But I but but Patty, let's go back to you know you were talking about you had you had surgery and started chemo while you were pregnant, and then continued chemo um, beyond your pregnancy. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. That's and, and, yeah, yeah, tell us a little bit more about about you know about what that was like for you. Well, it was it was so petrifying um, that you would be taking you know I had a sinus infection during my pregnancy just before um, I was told I had cancer, and they were even worried whether I should take Sudafed or uh, you know the um, the penicillin you know, and then they were telling me that I can take these cancer drugs, um, and it was just mind blowing for me. Um, and luckily I was able to talk to people in the community. I called American Cancer Society and a couple other places, you know, to talk to somebody that has been in my shoes. And I was put in touch with a woman that was fifty years old, but that was not helpful to me. I wanted to talk to a mom, somebody that walked down my same road and through the community in Buffalo, New York where I live, um, I was able to talk to women that two women actually, one that had breast cancer like myself and another woman that had Hodgkin's just a year prior, and it was so wonderful just to pick up the phone and talk to them and to see how their babies are doing, you know, how were they born, and did they sit up when babies normally sit up in six months, you know, did they crawl at three months, did they did they walk um, at 12 months, and it was so just freeing just to know that they made it, they were on the same type of drugs as myself, they had similar surgeries, and their mm-hmm. babies just wonderfully fine, and it's like, oh. Just a burden, a huge burden was lifted. And when you say when you say fine, a hundred percent fine, no issues, no delays, no uh, no impact at all. No, no impact at all. I mean, yes, my doctor told me that, and that was wonderful that he did. But when I heard these from these ladies' mouths that they 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 were fine, they took the same treatments, and their babies were just. I heard them in the background, like whether they were talking or you know crying or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, I know, Doctor Cardonic. We, we're gonna. Uh, I know in our next segment we're gonna pull you in. We've got a lot of questions for you here, but but tell us tell us how it is that um, tell us how it is that a woman can be put under general anesthesia, that a woman can can get you know toxic uh, chemotherapy again. You know, as Patty was saying, people are telling you you know you, you can't take this over the counter medicine when you're pregnant. You shouldn't eat you know brie. You shouldn't drink coffee. You shouldn't do these things. So, and so, how, what is it about the human body that's so that's so protective of the baby through all of this? Right. I think I think there's two issues uh, 
that we talk about. And one is a risk-benefit ratio. You know, certainly you can do without cigarette smoking during your pregnancy. There's really no benefit to the baby. And certain medications, you know, Sudafed is a vasoconstrictor, so that might affect blood flow in the pregnancy. And then there's other drugs where if you could deal with the illness without treating it, then we don't need to say that there's a benefit for you taking that in pregnancy. Whereas in cancer, there's certainly a benefit of treating the mom that you balance against an unknown or a small risk to the fetus. That's the first thing. So you can't have a healthy baby if you don't have a healthy mom. And in cases of acute leukemia, just to give you an example, if we were to say you can't have chemo, then the mom will die with the baby in utero. And obviously, that's not um, what we want. We want to do what's best for the unit. So you have to look at the mom and baby together. Certainly, um, patients with cancer, if they don't get treated and they don't gain weight and there's other issues that make them then ill, then that's not good for the pregnancy. So the first thing is that there's a benefit to treating the mom. And as far as risks of the fetus, I think the placenta is the main uh, helper, the barrier. So there are certain um, proteins that the placenta makes that are called efflux proteins that actually send drugs away from the fetus. And Taxol is an example of a drug that would bind to that. Um, and then there's other products or other um, features of a drug that affect its ability to cross the placenta. So the larger the molecule, the less likely it's going to cross the placenta. The less like lipid, the less likely it's going to cross the placenta. So all drugs are different. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't judge a certain drug and say, well, since doxorubicin has been used in pregnancy with a certain amount of safety and data that we can just pick any drug in the anthracycline category. So idorubicin, which sounds very similar, has a different property that allows it to cross more. So you have to look at the drug individually and the experience that we have in pregnancy. But I think the main thing is that if you weren't to treat a woman and she would become sicker or ill, then you are indirectly hurting the baby in a different way. I see. I see. Okay. Um, and we're going to get into a few more medical questions with Dr. Cardonic. But, but Patty, let me go back to um, this experience that you had and the lack of information and the lack of support led you to co-found the organization uh, Hope for Two, which provides support for pregnant women with cancer. So, so tell us about that organization and, and um, what your experience has been in founding that organization. Yeah, um, it was about... Six months to a year after I finished all my treatments that I finally sat down and met these ladies that I talked to on the phone. Um, And we were talking about our experiences and saying, you know, is there something that we should be doing to uh, help other people? So I did a lot of investigating and making sure we're not duplicating services. There wasn't another organization like us out there. Um, And that led us to just say, okay, let's let's form a support uh, network. Yeah, we were the original support women. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, what our mission is to offer information, hope, and support. The information is on our website. Uh, there, we have a lot of different resources, medical journal articles, all those things that I was starving for when um, I was first diagnosed. You know, some of the medical journal articles, some of the ones, there's a couple articles that Dr. Cardonic has published and other um, physicians have published in stating that, that this can be done. You can be treated in your second and third trimester and... Um, you know, the survival outcomes are similar to the women that are non-pregnant. That's the information, but the support network, that's what I was also starving for as well, to talk to somebody else, um, that we have over 300 trained volunteer support women that have been there, done that. They've walked down our path, like Lisa and myself, uh, Lisa's one of them, that um, we have a wonderful database. Somebody comes onto our website or finds out about us through our medical provider. 
you know, a medical, um, you know, physician. Um, and we, they contacted us, they filled out our form, or they talked to us on the phone, and we matched uh, cancer for cancer. We like to match stage for stage. I know uh, Lisa said she had a, I think you said a lumpectomy, Lisa. Um, you know, lumpectomy, people want to talk to a lumpectomy. Uh, like a stage four person wants to talk to a stage four, not a stage one. So we, we closely match these people, and then um, they talk either via Internet or they talk on the phone. Um, wonderful. Now we have uh, a Facebook page, and it's mm-hmm. amazing. Some of these, these new um, social um, media, a lot of times people don't want to actually talk, talk to a person anymore. Mm-hmm. They want to just connect via Facebook. So we have a lot of activity on Facebook, too, that people are just being able to, you know, get that hope and support. And so how um, many members do you, did you say you have, Patty, or how many people in your network? Oh, we have over a 1,000 patients that we've helped, yeah, at least. Wow. And it's amazing because wow. now, like, with the Facebook, not Facebook, we have our website. The amount of activity that we're finding on our website is amazing. We have 700 unique visitors per month, and we have um, patients that we've help, actually helped in over 27 countries, but on, the, on our uh, website, we have, this past month, 57 countries people have been coming from 57 different countries looking on our website, and they spend an average of like three minutes per um, page. Wow. Uh, it's, it's amazing, yeah. So the, and people are like getting that hope and support that they need sometimes just by right. reading a story on our website. Oh, my God, this happened to me. Look at all these other ladies that it's happened to. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lisa, I know we're just getting quickly to the break here, but I know that uh, you joined um, you joined Hope for Two. How did you find out? Uh, about the organization and what's your experience been uh, in, in sort of tapping into this amazing network? My hospital social worker actually referred me to Hope for Two, and I called them, I think, the day after I was diagnosed. Um, and it has been just such a, an incredible support and resource for me. Um, like Patty said, I think just talking to other women about and seeing pictures of their babies and hearing the stories about how they're normal and fine, um, even here 16 years later with all of the advances in medicine, it made... It was so reassuring to me to hear that directly from other women. And then Dr. Karanik is a resource for women as well. I talked to her several times while I was pregnant with specific medical questions. I had a great team, but, um, you know, my OB was specialized in obstetrics and my oncologist is a specialist in oncology, obviously. So having somebody with her experience um, working with so many cancer patients over the years with her registry, um, you know, she knew which questions to ask and um, helped, you know, my team figure out. Uh, the best approach for my case. So um, it was just the the organization has just been incredible for me. So you um, so when you reached out to the organization, they connected you to someone who had been through your experience and had a similar cancer and staging and all of that. Yep, that's right. Yep, and her her baby was about four years old at the time. Um, and then, of course, you know, women like Patty who, you know, I think once you've been through this, a lot of women or people just kind of want to move on and forget about it. And it's, it's really amazing to have people like Patty who 16 years later are still sharing their story. Yeah. Uh, because I think when you're, you know, when you're initially diagnosed, sometimes it's hard to picture being there when your baby's 16 years old. So it's really great to hear those, you know, stories of long-term survival. And, um, uh, and and uh, and Lisa, are you um, involved now in the network? I mean, are you ha- have you had a chance to be a resource for other women who are going through the same thing, or is that something that you're interested in doing? 
Yep, I'm a support person, a formal support person for one woman who's going through chemotherapy right now. Um, she's in her second trimester of pregnancy uh, due this summer. And then um, I've actually been an informal support person for probably about four more women, um, one local and a few that um, I found kind of through other uh, breast cancer organizations. So um, I'm always happy to share my story the way that other women did for me. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, Patty, we're, we're... A lot of times people... Um, They'll say, isn't it difficult? Sometimes you get re-traumatized sometimes, right? They said when you tell the story over again, but it's amazing, like, especially in the beginning, like where Lisa is at, you know, she's just finishing treatment and you're going for scans and you're getting your checkups and, of course, you worry and you're like, you did it come back, you know, you have the sleepless nights and stuff. But once I picked up that phone, a new patient called me and I was able to share my story and help them through their first scary days, all my worries and thoughts about myself, like, just vanished. Just, like, it's, it's kind of amazing. By helping other people, you really help yourself. You really help yourself. And we hear that, you know, we hear that so much in our, in, at the cancer support community that that's very, uh, very uh, uplifting for people, very empowering. Uh, this is, frankly, speaking about cancer. We're talking today about cancer during pregnancy, which can be an incredibly challenging uh, and emotional issue. We're going to take a quick break here. Don't go away. We're going to be right back. out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices, I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you a breakaway from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Millennium and Amgen Oncology. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today I am joined by Dr. Elise Cardonic and OBGYN, Patty Murray, Hope for Two co-founder, and Lisa Bender, Hope for Two member. We're talking about women who've been diagnosed with cancer while they are pregnant. Uh, this is a rare condition, and, and there's still little information uh, or, or data, but we are uh, learning more, gathering more uh, information, and le- learning more about how to navigate what can be a very challenging situation. A lot of our knowledge is, uh, uh, is because of Dr. Elise Cardonic. Uh, Dr. Cardonic, I want to ask you... Um, uh, I want to get to some of the heart of some of these medical questions, and, and you know, it's been just amazing to hear Lisa and Patty's stories and, and hear the, you know, the, the real, uh, you know, kind of emotional roller coaster, you know, navigating such a complex issue. But let's get down to some of the medical questions. So, so based on, on, on the research, how common is cancer is a cancer diagnosis during pregnancy? Um, the literature says about one in a thousand pregnancies are complicated by cancer. Um, but I think as we all in OBGYN field see that our patients tend to be older now, that people have put off their pregnancies for careers or, or other reasons. So since we have an older obstetrical population, I think it's mm-hmm. going to be seen a little bit more often. It's, gonna, it's on the increase. So what is the impact? Um, uh, uh, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, the impact of cancer, first of all, on, um, on uh, the, the pregnancy. Again, I think people will be very surprised to hear what, what both Lisa and Patty shared with us, that, that, uh, that women who are pregnant can get uh, treatment. They, uh, they can be put under uh, general anesthesia for uh, surgery. They can get certain, certain uh, uh, chemotherapies. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Well, first of all, general anesthesia, people have to undergo surgeries for various reasons in pregnancy. So if you come in from a trauma, you're going to undergo surgery with general anesthesia. If you have appendicitis, if you have a, a gallbladder that's really uh, has uh, infection at the same time, you know, you, people do un- undergo surgery for various reasons, and there's definitely literature on over 5,000 women exposed to general anesthesia in pregnancy without an increased risk for uh, birth defects. And if there's some uh, patients exposed in the first trimester, there is an underlying risk of miscarriage of 15%, whether you undergo surgery or not. And having surgery in the first trimester, the miscarriage rate is not above that background risk. And the risk of surgery in general have to do with the underlying disease for which you're doing the surgery. So, so, so you know, I know you were talking earlier, and I, you know, I think this is, you know, it, 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 it sounds like it's a, an art as much of a science in terms of really doing the, 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 the cost-benefit analysis when a woman is diagnosed with cancer during pregnancy. Um, you know, how does, she, how does she start to, how do you help a patient kind of weigh all of these factors? Right. Um, uh, you know, how do you, how do you talk about, um, you know, finding a, a treatment path? How do you talk about the potential need to terminate a pregnancy? How, you know, how, how do you kind of enter into that conversation with the patient, Dr. Right. I, I think what Lisa was saying is I have the same question, and she'll probably remember me saying this, you have to go to your oncologist and say, if I were not pregnant, how would you treat me? That's mm-hmm. the first question. So if I have a patient who's eight weeks with acute leukemia and the answer is I would start chemo tomorrow, then that's a patient who you have to have a really intense conversation with because at eight weeks you are during organogenesis and she can't really delay 
chemotherapy without hurting herself and, as I said before, indirectly the baby. On the contrary, I might have a patient who has Hodgkin's disease at 28 weeks who's had the symptoms of a cough and itchiness that led to this diagnosis, but it's been there for a whole year, and the oncologist will say to me, she can wait until after the pregnancy is over to be treated without changing her prognosis. So even though an oncologist is familiar with cancer treatment and an OB is familiar with OB treatment, you really can't treat the patient in isolation. You have to work together. It has to be a multidisciplinary team that talks about if she were not pregnant, how immediate is the treatment necessary? If she were not pregnant, what treatment would be necessary or would be recommended. Having are, there, are there instances where uh, because of the, the, the potential risk to the mother's life, are there instances where the medical team does recommend termination of a pregnancy? Yes. I think for leukemia in the first trimester, as I said, you know, we know that the organs are developing between two to three to ten weeks post-conception. So if you have someone who's five, six, seven weeks with acute leukemia, you cannot wait five weeks till she's out of the first trimester to do that chemotherapy. And this may be a patient where her life and her her um, cancer requires her to be treated in timely fashion. And unless that oncologist can tell me, well, we can use this one been blast or nerve Kristen, one agent during the first trimester, and in five weeks give her the full course later after the 12 weeks are completed and still have the same prognosis, that may be the only modification I can think of because mm. certain agents have been used in the first trimester without fetal effects. But if that can't be done, then that may be a patient who has a serious decision to make because multiple agents in the first trimester have a high risk to cause fetal malformations. So, so, so if I understand what you're saying, the, the, uh, the further along in the pregnancy you can delay the treatment, the, the better are the chances for the baby to be healthy. I think you have to get out of the first trimester. I, you have to. Okay. I don't think we have the information to say that 20 weeks is better than 18. Okay. We don't have that information. That's actually something we're looking at in the registry. Right. But once the first trimester is over and not beyond 35 weeks, so between 12 and 35 weeks, 34 weeks, the fetus uh, can tolerate chemotherapy, and you have to stop at a certain point to allow the mom and baby's counts to come back up before delivery. So that's why we stop at 34 weeks in case someone goes into spontaneous labor 37 weeks or on. But there is another scenario in which someone mm-hmm. has to think seriously about uh, termination of pregnancy, and that would be if someone has recurrent disease, much less information on treating recurrent cancer in pregnancy than primary cancer. Usually mm-hmm. patients with recurrent cancer where they're not pregnant are going to go in a clinical trial, which pregnant women can't do. They're going to be given the most... Uh, the newest drug, perhaps, that's mm-hmm. been shown to help this recurrence, whereas in information in pregnancy, we want to use the drugs that are the oldest or the ones with the most safety experience. We don't want to use the newest drugs that have just developed where we don't have enough safety data. So mm-hmm. if you have a rare cancer that mm-hmm. requires a treatment that's never been used in pregnancy and a treatment that can't wait, then then that has to be on a case-by-case basis. You have to decide if... In order to get the best treatment for her cancer, she needs to do a termination or take the risk that we don't know what this drug may do, but you are in the second or third trimester, and right. it may be right. okay, but we don't know. Now, now, Lisa and Patty's situations were, were both, you know, uh, uh, pretty amazing. I mean, they both had healthy, you know, had healthy children. Do you have in your, you know, in your data set or in your experience, are, uh, are you dealing with women whose child has had uh, a birth defect or who has not been healthy as a result of them getting treatment during pregnancy? 
Um, we have uh, 180 babies exposed to chemotherapy and uh, 12 malformations, which comes out to, a, I think it was very close to the general background population of 3 to 5%. Uh, and do we know do we know if those if those malformations can be attributed to the chemo? No, we don't. You can't you can't know that. You can't you know can't that. know that with even not even non cancer drugs. You can never unless you see a pattern um, that mm-hmm. multiple babies exposed to the same drug have the same malformations. You can't say that they wouldn't have had that malformation to begin with. But right. you still count it as you know an exposure during that pregnancy. And one baby. Um, had a malformation diagnosed before the chemotherapy was started. Interesting, um, interesting. And you're saying it trends according to the general population, what you're seeing in your very data? Very close. Very, very close. close. Okay. And there was, okay. Even, there's, there was even a percentage of babies in the registry whose mom had cancer who did not have chemotherapy who had malformation. Interesting, interesting. Um, I, uh, we're getting close to the break here. Um, I have so many questions for you. <laughs> I do um, have one more thing to add. If we yeah, have please, a, a please. Is that the... the the basis of the registry and the most important thing is, as Patty was saying, you want to know about development long-term, not just how the baby appears at birth. Okay. But we also pick up birth defects at one year of age. So there are some children that had we only looked at birth, the birth rate, the birth defect rate would have been less. So when I say 12, that includes babies that were diagnosed up to 18 months post-delivery. Mm-hmm. So that's another mm-hmm. advantage to follow these babies long-term. Mm-hmm. And do you come across, as we get to the break here, Dr. Cardonic, do you... Um, uh, do you come across, so despite this, this, uh, the data and the experiences of Lisa, the experiences of Patty and others, do you come across women who say, absolutely, I want no, uh, no treatment uh, during my pregnancy? Yes. Uh, depending on what type of cancer they have depends on how supportive you want to be of that approach. So as I said, someone with Hodgkin's disease who the oncologist feels that, you know, 28 weeks we can put off chemotherapy for a period of time, I might encourage the patient to be induced a little bit earlier uh, Mm -hmm. than term so that she can start her chemotherapy sooner than later. But I've also heard very sad stories of women diagnosed very early in their pregnancy who didn't want to terminate and decline treatment and then died when the baby was two months of age. Mm -hmm. So you Mm -hmm. have to have that conversation of, yes, you may spare the fetus some exposure, but you are not going to be here for your child you have to look at the long-term continuum of the family unit beyond the nine months of pregnancy. And, and so, Dr. Cardonic, are you, and again, just we're, we're close to the break here, but are you, uh, are you doing that counseling or do you, do you have other folks, do you have social workers, psychologists, other folks who come in and do that counseling and decision-making with the patient and the family? Uh, I think the patient herself talks to many different people, family mm-hmm. members, clergy, second opinions, uh, Easily. Um, I don't bring other people into the discussion right then and there. I tell them mm-hmm. what the literature has shown. I tell them what, uh, confidentially what the registry has shown, the number of people that have been mm-hmm. exposed to chemotherapy mm-hmm. without giving uh, any identifiers out. And I sure. always refer them, you know, to Patty and her organization for support. Yeah. I, I don't think a patient in this situation makes a decision based on one conversation. Right, right, right. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking about cancer during pregnancy. Don't go away. We're going to be right back. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. 
For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking today about cancer during pregnancy. We were diving in a little bit with Dr. Elise Cardonic about some of the medical uh, questions. I just have uh, one more question for you, Dr. Cardonic, as we continue um, uh, uh, the conversation. So, um, so, you know, kind of a little bit of a next part of the conversation, um, and I'm sure you're having this with women, but, but what do we know about the impact of, of, of cancer treatment on fertility? So you've got someone who's pregnant, right? Maybe it's maybe it's somebody with their first child, second child. Maybe they want to or plan to have more uh, children. What do we know about the impact of of treatment on fertility and uh, and the ability to have future pregnancies? Okay, so when we talk about fertility with cancer treatment, we are talking about the non-pregnant patient. When a pregnant patient gets exposed to chemotherapy, her she's not ovulating during that pregnancy, so her ovaries are in a dormant state, per se, and there's no information on uh, fertility after chemotherapy in pregnancy. People resume their menses at different times. Um, some women who have uh, cancer during pregnancy finish their childbearing, have their ovaries removed afterwards if they have an estrogen-positive tumor, so that population of women who are pregnant with cancer who go on to have other children, we don't have a lot of information on how long it took them to get their menses back or how difficult it was for them to terminate, to, I'm sorry, get pregnant afterwards. The issue with infertility and cancer treatment is when the woman is actively menstruating and now she's undergoing chemotherapy in the non-pregnant okay. state. And depending on the patient's age, there's a real concern for 
uh, infertility. The older a woman is, the more likely she's going to uh, have a more difficult time getting pregnant in the future. A younger woman, much lower risk. It also depends on the chemotherapy agent that she's uh, using. Uh, the, the nice uh, developments that are coming out now with cancer patients is that in the past, when men were diagnosed with cancer, they were given the option of sperm banking, and that really wasn't offered on the same mm-hmm. frequency to women to to preserve their fertility. And I think that oncologists and reproductive endocrinologists are much more in tune with talking to a young woman undergoing treatment about preserving fertility. So if she has... Again, you have to go back to the oncologist and say, do I have six weeks, four weeks delay without affecting her prognosis where I could stimulate her ovaries and fertilize them with her partner's sperm and freeze embryos? Do I have time to freeze ovaries because she doesn't have a partner at the time? Um, and there's even some research on preserving uh, tissue from the ovary itself. So uh, for when you're pregnant and you have the chemotherapy, I don't think there's a real concern about long-term fertility issues. We do have quite a few women in the registry who've gone on to have other children, and I mm-hmm. haven't heard from patients that it was a difficult time to conceive. Right. But right. with a non-pregnant, you know, young menstruating woman, interesting. Um, it depends on her age, the agents that she's using, and if she has time to preserve, mm. you know, her fertility. Right, right. Interesting, interesting. Um, Lisa uh, uh, and Patty, we're just we're getting quickly towards the end of the show, which again I could just be talking to you guys for hours. This is really just so interesting and and uh, and educational. Um, but but Lisa, can you just take a moment or two to tell us uh, what it was like, you know, with your family? Um, I, you know, obviously this is. You know, this is a situation that doesn't just impact the individual with cancer, impacts uh, spouse, family, siblings, um, you know, a, a, lot, a lot of ramifications. Can you talk, Lisa, about that for a moment? Absolutely. I uh, was so lucky to have the support of my family. We had just moved halfway across country to live closer to family, and I was so thankful that we made that decision. Um, my husband was just incredible throughout the experience. He came to every medical appointment while I was pregnant, every chemotherapy appointment um, just was there for me and um, was an incredible partner. I had an unmedicated vaginal childbirth, um, which I really wanted to have, and he was just an incredible partner in that. Um, and then my folks, after my daughter was born, I had to get on chemo and a few weeks later, and I had surgery to fix my pores and all these different medical appointments, and so they started taking care of her when she was three weeks old whenever I needed mm-hmm. help. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up taking uh, six months off of work. Um, I thought I was going to go back earlier, but it just wasn't possible. I had a really hard time on the second kind of chemo that I did. Um, probably not sleeping with my newborn didn't help with my recovery <laughs> from chemo, too. But, um, so, you know, my whole family just really pitched in. And my husband's family is from out east, but they um, several came to visit and help us out. So it, it was a really big deal for us to have that support. And- no, I, I think I think it's critical what you're saying. And and, um, and and Lisa, may I ask you, are you able to have more children? Do you plan to have more children? How do you think about the uh, the future after this experience? For me, the big question is about um, my ongoing treatment. So I'm estrogen positive. Um, so I'm on a hormonal drug, which uh, typically would be used for five years, and then after that, potentially different anti-hormonal drugs would be used. Um, in talking with my oncologist and a second opinion oncologist, my current plan is to stop taking that drug after a total of two years. So um, when Alice is about two years old, uh, to try to get pregnant again, we would love to have another child. Um, but, you know, if it doesn't work out, and I also know women who've, um, you know, adopted and had an amazing experience with that. So I think that we will mm-hmm. 
you know, hopefully expand our family uh, however we can. Yeah, one, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Um, Patty, can you uh, just quickly tell folks again where they can find information about Hope for Two and what uh, what your organization offers? Right. Um, you go on www.hopefortwo.org, um, and we have just so many resources there. Uh, we have information about how to you know reach Dr. Cardonic. How you can, if you've been there, done that, um, become one of our volunteer support women, or you know, as important and more importantly, is if you're a current patient or you have a patient, or you're a mom of a girl that just was diagnosed with cancer while pregnant, you can get support. You will be able to uh, fill out a form, and within 24 hours, we'll get back to you. We'll find a patient for you that um, is in our database as one of our trained volunteers. And you can start getting the information that you need because that's exactly what I needed. I needed to talk to somebody that um, walked in my shoes before, so I would they would be able to understand the feelings of isolation that I had or the fears that I would make my baby's first milestones, like her first steps, graduating from kindergarten or grade school, and all of those other cares and concerns. It's uh, we've we've been there for uh, around here for 15 years, and um, don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just, Lisa, quickly, what did that mean to you, the connection through Hope for Two? Well, as I said before, Hope for Two was just a, a really uh, incredible resource for me, both from the medical perspective of Dr. Cardonic and then um, hearing from other women, just the inspiring stories that are there. I mean, this is a very difficult experience. Yes. Um, yes. Just hearing Dr. Cardonic Cardonic go through the decisions that women have to make. It's it's extremely yes. difficult, and even in these happy endings, um, having the support of women um, yes. while you're making these decisions is, is so important. That's a, it's yeah, it's, a, it's amazing, and we really applaud uh, the work of your organization of uh, Hope for Two. And again, the website is hopefortwo.org. Uh, I want to I want to thank our guests, uh, Lisa Bender, Dr. Elise Cardonic, and Patty Murray, for joining us today on Frankly Speaking about Cancer. It's been a a really wonderful and meaningful uh, meaningful show, and a lot of great information and hope um, during what can be a very difficult time. Um, we want to dedicate our uh, episode today to all the mothers out there who are dealing with this situation, especially you, Lisa and Patty. You've dealt with cancer through your pregnancy, and, and uh, you, you've uh, uh, been involved with this wonderful organization to bring hope and support and a great network to other uh, women who are battling cancer through pregnancy. Um, uh, at the Cancer Support Community here, we've got a lot of great free resources. We've got uh, 57 affiliates around the country, all over the country, where we do support groups, education, nutrition, stress reduction. Uh, you can find us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Uh, you can call us at 883-793-9355. Find us on Facebook and on Twitter. All of our programs and services are free with, uh, for folks with any cancer, any stage of illness, and for the family members, loved ones, and caregivers as well. So come and check us out, cancersupportcommunity.org. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.